Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber with the American Journal of Managed Care, and guess what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the Senate uh, healthcare proposal. And I am delighted to have a repeat guest, Nathan Bays. Uh, last time we chatted, we were talking about the House proposal right before the CBO scoring uh, was released. And today we're going to talk about the Senate version, which has I think a less attractive name, the BCRA or the Better Care Reconciliation Act of 2017. And the rumor is that CBO score will be out this afternoon. So let's, uh, let's, let's dive right in, Nathan. Um, a, a bit about Nathan. He is the managing director at Kane Brothers, which is a healthcare investment bank. And he is still serving, as he was last time we talked, as a policy advisor to the Health Management Academy. So, Nathan, here we are again. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about is, uh, so, so the CBO scoring is coming out. And it's my understanding from the news reports today that Senator McConnell has been releasing bits and pieces of the proposed legislation to the CBO, uh, getting preliminary scoring and then taking it back to his working group so he could tweak what they have in the bill, uh, probably to improve the score. So my question to you is, do you have any prediction about how the bill will end up scoring? Is it going to be as bad as the House bill, or will it be significantly better? Yeah, well, thanks so much. Uh, First, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be back. Um, And diving right into your question, you know, it's a great, it's a great, um, it's a great question, because what is really going on is a balancing act between uh, the scoring provisions and going back and forth and satisfying the requirements that need to be met as a result of budget reconciliation, which is, of course, the process that's being used um, to legislate this Affordable Care Act repeal and replace bill. Um, So satisfying the budgetary constraints of needing to save at least as much money as the House bill does, while also balancing policy priorities of, uh, of his caucus. Which is what which is what Senator McConnell is is doing now. So I think that um, what we know for sure is that the the bill must generate as much savings as the House bill does for purposes of budget reconciliation. So that's a given. As it relates to will it will it show more savings? Will uh, the savings? Obviously, the House bill generates most of its savings from the changes to Medicaid, uh, which I know we'll we'll talk about um, at some point in in this discussion, but. Um, the question is, will will the savings come from different places? What will they look like? And how will, um, you know, will Leader McConnell balance the, the need to generate savings that equal the House bill with policy priorities of his members? And I think that's the juggling act that you're you're hearing about that's going on right now. Right. And the juggling act, I mean, you, you said his caucus, but in actual fact, his caucus is, 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 is more than one, right? Because he has the four senators, kind of the libertarian conservative senators, uh, you know, on, on, on the right who are saying this bill as it currently exists doesn't go far enough. 
they want complete repeal. And interestingly, in the news uh, over the weekend, the Koch brothers, uh, who wield a lot of power, have a lot of money, have announced that they're going to hold back on the the money that they've that they've budgeted to to give in the next uh, election cycle, um, because they don't think that the bill has gone far enough to repeal. But then the flip side is. Uh, McConnell also has to, Senator McConnell also has to balance what the, what the moderates want, uh, the, the Susan Collins of the world. Do you think it's possible to do both things? I think it's, it's difficult, but um, possible. And, you know, my personal opinion is I actually think it's, it's probable in this circumstance. I mean, I think that there, um, there are a lot of challenges, no question, uh, but but, you know, and it's always dangerous to make predictions about how things will play out in, in Washington, certainly now. You're, you're accurate that, that the Republican Party is not just a single caucus. It's, it's comprised of lots of different interests. But I think that um, the, it's certainly possible that, that over the next few days, what you'll see are several iterations that look to, uh, several legislative iterations, I should say, that look to satisfy different interest and concerns. Um, we saw one today already that was just released um, that had some changes. It's likely there will be more. Uh, in addition, it's likely there will be amendments on the floor. Um, uh, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. We'll see how all that sorts out. Um, but that could, you know, so there could be lots of iterations over the next week as to, to what this looks like. And I think that there is probably sufficient flexibility in here to satisfy most of those caucuses, uh, you know, time will tell whether, uh, you know, whether Leader McConnell can satisfy them all. Certainly, it's not easy. But uh, but I think that there's flexibility. And I think that um, I certainly wouldn't count against, uh, you know, uh, count him out at this stage uh, in the game, despite the number of people who have voiced concerns. Yeah, I think I think we've learned not to count anything out in this in this particular uh, time frame and in, on this particular topic. I wanted to dive into some of the provisions that I think for from a consumer point of view are really, really important. And the first one is the prohibition on uh, using pre pre-existing conditions to deny somebody uh, access to health insurance. It has been an extraordinarily popular consumer protection in the ACA. As a matter of fact, in the past, I would have said touching that is like touching the third rail. Um, but um, it's my understanding that the bill has a way to kind of touch the third rail and maybe get away with it. And that is through um, this waiver uh, provision that they've put in so that they can announce to the world, yes, we have retained the prohibition on pre-existing conditions, but some states um, can get around it if they innovate, they get a waiver and they innovate and uh, they can propose an alternative mechanism. So first of all, do, do I have that right? And then secondly, what will that mean for the approximately 50% or more of people in this country that have pre-existing conditions? Because we used to think of pre-existing conditions as being like these big things, I've got diabetes or heart disease, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually the sick person. But we know prior to the ACA, minor things like rashes and, uh, you know, minor aches and pains uh, were used as pre-existing conditions. So, so, so what do you think? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, so that's a, an interesting question. And I, and I would say that, um, you, you know, what I would say is I don't think there's any, 
any, I think that the answer as to whether it's a good or a bad thing is going to be based upon um, your specific health condition. Certainly, if you have a pre-existing condition, um, this would be very bad. The thought behind, you know, providing this flexibility, um, and certainly, you know, kind of on my side, not taking one side or another, but just explaining it, and then, and then kind of coming back to why I said it's, it could be good or bad. And it's bad if you have a pre-existing condition, but it can be good. If you're healthy, certainly one of the arguments that's been made is because of some of the pricing mechanisms and some and some of the coverage related to pre-existing condition, that's raising the cost and making the cost of coverage unaffordable for certain people who are healthy. That opens a whole Pandora's box about, you know, obligations and, and certainly an insurance, you know, people who are healthy fund uh, those who are, are sick and that at some point we're all sick and all of those different kind of, as you referenced, kind of third rail conversations that go on. I think, but I think the bottom line is is clear. If you have a pre-existing condition, uh, certainly this makes it more challenging for you. Could make it more challenging for you, I should say, depending on how, uh, as you reference, how some of these innovation waivers play out. Um, and uh, but the flip side of that is it's intended to lower the cost of coverage for everyone else. So you know that's the trade-off, and um, certainly depending on where you sit, not a great. You know, I don't know if this is a great answer to your question, Pat, but whether it's good or bad certainly depends on on where you sit and uh, what, what issues you have. Um, but I think it just, it goes deeper into this, um, you know, healthcare is, you know, to echo the words of both Republicans and Democrats and the president, is it's a difficult issue with, with trade-offs that are real um, to, uh, to people. And, you know, I mean, this is not something that kind of exists in the abstract and it's not something where there's a uniform answer to whether this is right or wrong. And I think that, um, I think that's why it's so difficult. You know, one of the things that's bothered me a lot in the discussions around this particular issue is there's been um, there's been a lot of sentiment of of blaming um, the person who has the condition. So Secretary Price actually said at Stanford, probably not the best location, a bunch of a bunch of of, of, of health experts at Stanford. He he said, oh well, you know, should we really have to pay for that person who sits around on their sofa and drinks sugary drinks all day and, and gets diabetes? And what bothers me is is first of all, that's kind of like blaming the person for getting their diabetes. But the second thing that bothers me, and particularly for Secretary Price because he's a physician, is there's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding about about uh, how people stay well and how people get sick. Um, you know, you can do everything right. You can be that guy that, you know, eats only plants and exercises every day and, you know, uh, even had healthy parents and you step off the curb and get hit by a bus. I mean, you know, bad things happen and it's totally unpredictable. And that's the reason why we have insurance. It, it kind of feels to me this, this whole discussion that we're having um, is is that people seem not to be accepting of the fundamental underlying concepts of health insurance. I think that that so I, I it's you know it's it's hard to disagree and one of the things that you know I you know I think that um, if you think about it realistically to use kind of some of what you described regardless of how healthy we are you know how healthy we eat and how healthy you know how much we exercise you know, at some point, it's very likely, you know, this doesn't apply to everyone, but at some point, most all of us will be high cost, um, you know, or high consumers of healthcare. Uh, and so whether that's for a period of time, as you referenced, you know, you, someone steps off a curb and is hit by a car, um, whether it's at the end of life, at some point during our life, maybe multiple times during our life, many of us will be 
you know, high consumers of healthcare. And I think that's, so I think that the point you make is, is well made and it doesn't, you know, um, a snapshot in time is not reflective of, of kind of a broader, uh, a longer term look at, at the spectrum of how we use and consume healthcare. Yeah, I agree. I, well, so I want to continue on this waiver process because um, people have said that the use of this waiver process will also allow states the opportunity to get out from under the essential health benefit, which which is another um, pretty popular consumer protection that's been in the ACA. And it'll allow insurers to offer plans without coverage for you know, things like maternity care or chemotherapy or the cost of new biologics. Um, and, uh, and what worries me about that is even, it doesn't matter how simple, and we certainly don't do that in the insurance industry, but how simple you make the explanation of benefits or the, or the descriptions of what's covered and what's not covered, people still don't really understand what's in their plans and they would, and they expect that certain things are covered, um, you know, even though they may not turn out to be in there. So, um, so again, um, your, your thoughts on this and, and if you think people will be able to innovate their way around it or, 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 or if it's just playing a good thing and consumers should have the choice and I choose to, I don't believe I'll ever get cancer. So I choose to buy a plan without chemotherapy. Yeah, I think that's a tougher question, Pat. It's, you know, I think that there are people, um, the essential health benefits is a tougher question. And, and it, I think it's actually an interesting question. It's, it's become partisan, but if you actually look at some of the comments on that, you know, there have been, you know, Democrats who have been in favor of, of certainly reducing the stringent nature of the essential health benefits and Republicans that have been for it, right? So it's been an interesting, I feel like it's, it's, it's become a partisan issue, but if you go back certainly over the, over time and even before the ACA was passed, um, you know, the essential health benefits to me almost struck me as more of a personal preference question than a political party question. Um, but I think that, um, I think a couple of things on the essential health benefits, certainly, it, you know, it, it has had a consumer impact. It's also had an impact on providers, right? And the, the standard nature of, of knowing that individuals who purchase coverage will ha- or purchase coverage through the exchanges will have a certain set of benefits associated. So I think there have been benefits to the provider community as well as to the, um, to the patient community, um, uh, consumer of healthcare community, to the essential health benefits. So I think that the essential health benefits going away or at least moving into a realm where they're more flexible could not only have benefits on the individual and on the patient, could also have, you know, potentially, you know, an impact on uh, on the provider community as well. Um, I think that it, it, you know, similar to to what we discussed, you know, before on the pre-existing conditions. Um, you know, if you're uh, if you're young and you're healthy. Um, then, you know, having more flexibility or providing that flexibility for essential health benefits, you're probably going to like that. And will there be young and healthy people who purchase, you know, quote unquote, skinny plans that don't have full coverage and something happens? And is that a, you know, a, a personal crisis for them and a, and a crisis more broadly, you know, for, um, for the insurance markets, if that happens too much, it, 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 of course it is. But um, I think this just goes to show that the trade-offs that both Republicans and Democrats are having to make, you know, the, the trade-offs that Democrats made in 2010 when they passed the law of knowing that if we, you know, institute essential health benefits, it could make the plans more cost prohibitive for others. Now Republicans are facing the opposite, which is if we take these away or certainly provide flexibility to states to change them, we may be putting people at risk uh, and are people, you know, you know, capable of kind of making the right type of insurance purchasing decision. As you reference, it's a very complex um, you know, very complex to make those decisions. 
you know, I, sitting here today, you know, I, obviously I, I'm not going to, you know, say my personal beliefs, but I think that the, there are good, strong arguments either way. And, you know, I think time will tell as to whether this is a good way to approach it or not. And I, I think it's just, you know, too early at this point. Certainly there will be people who are, detri- you know, impacted negatively from it. And there will be others who pay less and, and it works out fine. And I think it's just one of those society trade-offs. It's a really tough conversation to have. And, and people certainly feel, uh, you know, strongly on both sides. Well, that's, that's for sure. And I, I guess part of the strength of my opinions comes from having been in healthcare for a really long time and, and seeing that we've already done some of these experiments and they didn't work. And we're going to go back and do it again and think we're going to get a different outcome. Maybe we will. <laughs> that remains to be seen. Um, so let's talk about about money, let's talk about subsidies. Um, the, the subsidies have been really important for people who've been participating in the exchanges. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, something like 85 to 90% of people who are on the Obamacare uh, individual market exchanges are actually getting the subsidies. In the Senate bill, the BRCA, um, the sub- subsidies will be advanceable tax credits. So I'm assuming for the consumer, it'll feel pretty much the same as it did in Obamacare. And luckily, they moved away from the House, uh, which was just going to calculate the subsidies based on age, and they've added income and geography back. As far as I can tell, it looks like the subsidies will be covering people at about the same uh, level of poverty as as the ACA. Is is this going to be enough to help uh, but they're, they're going to tie it actually to a, a benchmark that evidently is less generous than under the ACA. So the question is, is this going to be enough to help low-income people buy insurance in the private market, or or do you think they'll get priced out as they have in, in the past? And by the way, uh, I believe it's only funded through 2019. Right, and it, it's up to um, the other, so a couple of other differences in the in the Senate bill. The Senate bill only goes up to 350% of federal poverty. Um, for the subsidies, but what both the House and the Senate bill also did um, different is they go back down and pick up the quote unquote, um, you know, the gap or the donut hole that existed in the ACA. The ACA funded subsidies from 100% to 400% of poverty. So what that meant is that that if you were in a state that did not expand Medicaid um, and you were below 100% of poverty, you actually could be ineligible for the subsidy. Right. So you were you were in a state that did not have Medicaid expansion and you would be kind of carved out of this um, this this whole donut hole, so to speak, because of the way that the ACA was uh, was drafted. Certainly after it was passed and it became politically sensitive, there was no way to go back and fix that after the Supreme Court decision that made Medicaid expansion optional. That would not have been an issue had Medicaid expansion been mandatory as Medicaid expansion went up to 138 percent of poverty. So the Republican bill, the Senate bill. takes care of that, as did the House bill. The Senate bill, though, comes down from the 400% to the 350%, continues to, um, you know, continues to have the, you know, the varying by income, age, and, you know, in healthcare into the, the pricing of the, of the tax credit. Um, you know, my, you know, I, I think that, that this probably will result in relatively um, negligible changes to the operation of the exchange markets. And this in kind of these subsidization markets. I mean, I think having a direct subsidy versus tax credit um, 
you know, the argument has been that the tax credits are, you know, are going to be more, you know, burdensome and there won't be because it's not a direct subsidy. You know, it will be there won't be as many people that take advantage of those at the same time. And again, I haven't had a chance to, to see if this is in the most updated version of the Senate bill. But I know in the House bill, there was language that, you know, directed CMS over the next few years um, or directed HHS, I should say, over the next few years to find a way to pass the tax credits directly into the health insurance companies. So assuming they were able to set up a system to do that, which, you know, granted would take some time, that would allow the tax credits to operate effectively the same as the subsidies. So I guess the bottom line from my perspective, Pat, and who knows, I, you know, it's hard to predict, you know, in a, in a vacuum how any of this will play out over the next few years. As you say, some of this has been tried before. It hasn't worked well. Will it work differently this time? Who knows? Um, you know, I would put this into a camp of just, at least right now, I would assume this will have a negligible change in, you know, the number of people that are covered and able to, to receive subsidized coverage, with the difference being, of course, 350% of federal poverty, if that holds is less than 400%, right, which is where it's at now. So certainly at the at the higher end of that range, there will be people who don't don't receive the coverage. But as far as the effectiveness of, of tax credits for direct subsidies, I I would anticipate that those changes are, are probably relatively negligible. Okay, that's good. I did see language in, in one summary that said the subsidies are advanceable, and, and I interpreted that as meaning that you would be able to pay the insurance companies directly. Is that a false assumption? No, they are advanceable. I think the question is just whether the subsidies can pass directly from Treasury to the insurance company. or do they need coming to, to me, and then I have to write a check yeah. Right. And so the advanced, well, the structure is that they're, they would come to the individual, essentially, um, they're advanceable, but, but there was language, at least in the, in the house bill again, and I don't know about the most recent Senate bill that, you know, kind of broad language that instructed, you know, HHS and the treasury to see if there was a way that they could be passed directly to um, the health plans bypassing the consumer. So whether that language stays or remains, who knows, but if, if that happened, then, then that would effectively allow the tax credits to operate in a similar method as the subsidies. So. Yeah, and that would be a good thing. So I saved the best for last. Um, let's talk about Medicaid. Uh, I would say that is probably the part of this whole thing that's been giving people the most angst and getting the most uh, press. Um, the um, and, and certainly when the House bill came out, it created a fair amount of outrage because of the number of people who were going to be dropped. So my understanding is that what the Senate bill is going to do is to, um, instead of discontinuing the expansion uh, right away, they're going to discontinue it as of 2020. I'm sorry, they're, instead of what the House bill did, which was to discontinue as of 2020, the Senate is going to phase it down starting in 2020 and then discontinuing it by 2023. So kind of pushing, is that kicking the can down, down the street a little bit? Um, so can, can you talk to me a little bit about, and I, this is my language, not yours, but can you talk a little bit about the impact of this, both on the perception of the meanness of this bill, as well as how you think that's going to impact the overall CBO score compared to the way the House bill scored? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, Pat, and I think that the way you you phrase that is interesting. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll I'll start with kind of what you know what you refer to as the, the meanness question, and what I'll I'll do is really just translate this into you know how is this going to play out amongst the healthcare community? Certainly, whether you're you know whether you're in favor of this bill, your politics put your you're you know in favor of this bill or you're against this bill, 
there's no question that the structural changes to Medicaid, um, the per capita caps, the Medicaid expansion, which you uh, which you reference, which is kind of the longer phase out on, on the Senate side, um, and the broader Medicaid provisions, as there are others that, that exist with Medicaid, some good, some bad, returning dish cuts, um, disproportionate share hospital cuts, you know, arguably a good thing, reducing the provider tax, which is a, essentially a tax that, that hospitals typically pay to allow states to receive a higher federal match. Reducing the cap on that from 6% to 5% is going to be a, a difficult thing for the provider community. All of these in aggregate, um, Pat, I think will make this bill, again, whether you're for it or against it, a, a solid truth for this will be that this bill has devastating consequences for the provider community particularly for, uh, for the hospital community. So I think that there's no question that the amount of money in the structure, the amount of money that will come out and the structural changes to Medicaid are very, very, will be very, very impactful to that, um, to that community. Um, certainly there are downstreams from that as it relates to patients, right? There, there are direct downstreams as it relates to coverage. So, you, you know, you may have been covered with Medicaid before and now you won't be covered going forward. That's your question about, you know, the expansion. But then there are also downstream, you know, impacts to patients if providers have, you know, more ch- more challenging reimbursement environment to Medicaid more broadly, which certainly this bill will do. So I think there's no question, again, aside from your politics for or against it, the impact on providers, and I do think that providers, particularly facility-based providers, will take the hardest hits from uh, the Medicaid changes in this bill. To your question specifically about how will the extended Medicaid, you know, uh, how will the extended Medicaid um, uh, expansion phase out, how will that impact the scoring? Certainly that's going to add more cost to the bill because the House bill ended it earlier, didn't have the phase out. So given that the Senate bill provides more of a tail um, on this program than the House bill did, that's going to mean that it's more money is spent, less money is saved. And so they'll have to come up with money other places to hit the, the budgetary requirements. Um, the budgetary um, requirements that are a result of of using budget reconciliation for this legislation. I think that's why you actually see some of these other changes, right? So that the House bill didn't have the the provider tax phase down, the Senate bill does. So it phases the cap on the provider tax from uh, from 6% to 5%. So beginning in 2020, it starts to phase that down two-tenths of a percent each year. Um, That is a real direct uh, you know, reduction in money that's being spent by the federal government. It's less money that's coming to providers. And it's a way to start making up some of this extra money they're spending for the Medicaid phase down. So I do think that the, the direct impact of the phase down is it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase, uh, so to speak, the, the CBO, uh, the amount of money that's being spent in Medicaid, reducing the savings. But they're doing things also in Medicaid to make up for that in other places. So it's, it's all still going on. A lot of this is kind of going on in the Medicaid space, Pat. So even though it's not directly, you know, the expansion may have a longer tail, there are other things going on in Medicaid to take money out of the program. So it's a little bit, uh, it feels a little bit like playing 3D chess, <laughs> it seems like. Uh, well, our time just zipped by, but I have one, I think, kind of fun uh, question to close with, and it uh, relates to President Trump. Uh, because the mean word didn't come from me. It actually came from him. He called the bill mean at different times. And uh, he's also said that he wants to sign a bill that will cover everyone and bring down premiums. So I have two questions. Number one, will this bill do either of those things? And number two, if it doesn't do those things, do you think he'll veto it? 
<laughs> well, that's a great question. <laughs> I, I'll answer. I'll answer the second one first because I think that's an easier one. Which is, I do not think. I do not think he will veto the bill. You know, always difficult to predict how how any politician will react. But I, I don't think he'll veto the bill um, if the Senate passes it and then the House, you know, passes the Senate bill. That said, as it relates to to your first question, is this going to bring premiums down? You know, I think that's a great. It's a great question, and it's actually been one of the questions that, as you referenced kind of at the beginning of our time together, that, you know, some of the moderates have actually, and the libertarians on the Republican side have actually raised that question, right? Are we actually, we're doing a lot of things, we're changing, we're impacting the health care of, uh, of individuals, we're impacting providers, and are we actually going to have an output of this that reduces costs? Um, and, and, you know, does, you know, doesn't do damage to coverage. How is this actually going to, how is this actually going to play out? Uh, will premiums be lower? Will be more people, you know, be able to purchase coverage? Uh, how is this all going to play out? You know, I don't know what, I, what I saw this morning is with the most up-to-date Senate tweaks, I did see that one of the large national insurance companies made a statement that they thought that the additional tweaks that were released to the, to the Senate language this morning would do a good job of stabilizing the market and reducing premiums. I don't know, and again, this is kind of speaking as this is a moving target, whether any other health plans, major plans have come out and made those statements. So I think that the answer is uh, a little bit of, it's, it's too early to tell. What I will say, Pat, is that if, if Republicans, I think, make these changes, which will have, again, will be very impactful to both in, you know, individuals and to, uh, to the provider community. If they make these changes and there are not, resulting impacts on on the cost of health care if premiums don't go down uh you know if, if you know if, if some of those issues are not resolved then i think that um you know there probably will be and again this is just my speculation i'm sure they will face political consequences if that's the case and 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 maybe actually lead us to do something about the delivery system which is actually what drives the health care costs so I want to thank you very much, Nathan. This was really, really, really fun and a great discussion. And uh, I hope that we can get you to come back again uh, sometime in the future and we can discuss some of the, uh, some more of these issues. And meanwhile, we'll, we'll, we'll both wait, uh, holding our breath until we see what the CBO report actually says. So thank you very much. No, thank you, Pat. And I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to come back in a couple of weeks, whether we know whether it it passes or doesn't pass and, you know, talk about the implications. And now that there, once there's actually kind of a final product, assuming that, you know, if it does pass, then we can really go in deep about what are the implications and, and how will this play out? That would be terrific. Thank you. Thanks so much, Pat.